and welcome to I Think You're Interesting from the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Todd Vanderwerf. I'm the I, and I think you're interesting. And today I'm talking to Errol Morris, who is one of my favorite directors ever. I've recorded the interview already, so when I say it's a little intimidating, it's not because it's in my past, but I led into it feeling very nervous and, and awkward about uh, what I was going to say. Um, I think it's a, it's a fascinating conversation. If you don't know him, Errol Morris has directed many of the best documentaries of all time, uh, including The Fog of War, uh, an interview with the former Defense Secretary Robert McNamara, for which he won the Oscar for Best Documentary. My personal favorite, uh, Gates of Heaven, which is about a pet cemetery. He's also made films like The Thin Blue Line, which actually exonerated a man who was in jail and on death row. His new film is the B-side, Elsa Dorfman's Portrait Photography. It's a really moving tribute to everything from photography to the counterculture. It's in theaters now. It's just a lovely little portrait of a woman you've probably never heard of. I certainly hadn't, but whom Errol considers a great friend, and he wanted to make a movie about her, and we talked a lot about that and some other things. Uh, I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I enjoyed being a part of it, and I hope you do not feel intimidated by it. Mr. Morris, great to have you here. Thanks for having me on. So your new film, uh, The B-Side, Elsa Dorfman's Portrait Photography, you've had this long-standing fascination with photography. Uh, and this, to me, seems like sort of a, a companion or a film that joins sort of standard operating procedure, which was questioning what is the truth we get from photographs. This is a little bit more like what can we tell about people from photographs. What is interesting to you about photography and that art, uh, and why do you keep returning to it in your work? I'm a filmmaker. <laughs> Why wouldn't I? Yeah. Uh, the central feature of what I do. I suppose you could ask me why filmmaking? Mm -hmm. Why photography? I would describe my interests. I suppose if I could summarize it simply, I would say... I'm endlessly fascinated by the relationship between what's inside our heads and reality. Mm. Mm. And photography raises all of those questions in a very powerful and interesting way. Right. Many people look at a photograph and they think, ah, this is really what's out there in the world. This is what the world looks like. Uh, and yet we've learned over the years, photography has been with us for a couple of hundred years now, that there's a lot of slack in the system. Mm. There's a lot of difference between what we think we know from a photograph and what's really out there in the world. Right, right. So mm. I have, I'm an investigator. Um, involved in all kinds of investigations over the years, many uh, criminal investigations. In fact, I worked for many years as a private detective. Sure. Uh, so, yes, the relationship between what we think and reality. Yeah, yeah. I've been thinking a lot about your films in recent months because uh, there's sort of been this boom in the idea of, well, lots of people believe different things to be reality, and we all have different realities and alternate facts and all of this, but your films have been talking about that for years and years and years now. What have you learned about the way we perceive what we think is the truth from all these years of, of talking about these subjects? People never entertain the real possibility that they could be wrong. 
wrong about everything. Mm. Uh, there's a kind of, I don't know a better way to describe it, uh, human-based hubris mm. that somehow we have some privileged access to the world, to reality, to truth. Mm. And in fact, uh, I believe this for a long time, I believe it even more over time. The truth is a quest. It's something that we strive for. But that there is such a thing as truth. We now have a current administration that's actively involved in trying to deny even the notion of truth. Mm. But, of course, I have my, my own translation of the expression alternative facts. I call them lies. <laughs> Well, how, how did you uh, first come to know about Elsa Dorfman? How, how did she come onto your radar? Uh, this this is not somebody I've ever I had heard of until I saw your film. She's not well known. Mm-hmm. Well known to me, uh, I live in a kind of backwater, uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts, it's a university town. I've lived there now for close to thirty years. I moved from New York. Cambridge, because we had a child, uh, my son Hamilton, and it seemed a better place to bring somebody up. Yeah, yeah. Like a little kinder, a little gentler than New York City. And I've never regretted it. You're talking to somebody who regrets almost everything, mm. but I've never regretted moving there. It was a good thing. My wife answered an ad. Elsa Dorfman was taking photographs. Benefit. I can't even remember benefit for what. And we went in. She took a photograph of my son, who was four years old. Mm -hmm. He's now 30. And we've known both Elsa and her husband, Harvey Silverglade, for a long time. Yeah. And she's taken probably, I should count them all up one of these days, but well over 20, 25, maybe 30 photographs of my family. Mm. Uh, Our dogs. She's an excellent dog photographer. Uh, She took the photograph of Robert S. McNamara, which appears on the poster of Fog of War mm-hmm. and on the DVD. And I'm a fan. Yeah. I've been a fan for a while, probably for as long as I've been aware of her photography, I've been a fan. And one of the puzzling aspects of Elsa and her work is why isn't she better known? I love it, and I would like other people to love it. Uh, and I know by making this film, I'm introducing Elsa, Elsa the person, and Elsa the photographer and her work to a much wider audience. Right, right. And that's a good thing. Yeah, yeah. Mm, great. So you mentioned earlier that um, – we see photographs and we think, oh, this is the way things are. This is the truth. But I, I look at her photos and I feel like I get a sense of the person in those photos. What, what do you think we can tell about a person from looking at a portrait of them, if anything? Well, no, it does depend on the portrait, mm-hmm. no doubt. 
How much do I know about Abraham Lincoln from looking at 19th century uh, wet plate collodion photographs mm. taken of him? Mm-hmm. Um, it's a strange phenomenon. You look at these Alexander Gardner photographs of Abraham Lincoln, it's almost as if you know him. There's a kind of familiarity, there's a connection to Lincoln, but how well do I personally know Lincoln from the photographs? Probably not all that well. Right. Mm-hmm. There's a lot <laughs> There's a lot in this film about this camera she uses. There's were very few of them produced, and hers is one of the last remaining, I believe. Um, and there's a fascination with sort of that switchover from this old analog world to the world that we live in now. And I'm wondering, in your own work, have you... Are you still using film? Have you shifted to digital? Is that uh, uh, is that a conversation that you've had with yourself about like what are the merits of these two formats of, of producing movies? Uh, I don't know if it's a conversation that I've had with myself, but I do mm-hmm. think about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's inevitable. Things change. The whole process by which a film is made, photographed, edited, tra la 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 la. It's completely different than it was 20 years ago. Mm. What to do about it? Really nothing. I'm grateful that filmmaking remains as an art form. I can still ply my trade in some form. Elsa's is a different story. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure why. Part of it is that for me... Um, during the time that we became friends, Elsa was taking Polaroid photographs. So for me, if you're asking me and you are asking me, <laughs> she's really so intimately connected with that technology, with that process. And all that it entails, and it entails a lot. <laughs> it's not just simply you stand over here Uh, and smile, and I take your picture. It's something quite different. Mm. It's about a relationship with her, personal relationship with her and with the camera, going into her studio, having your photograph taken, talking to Elsa, becoming part of, I guess I could describe it as the Elsa universe, Mm. that group of people who know her, love her, who have asked to be photographed by her. And then standing around and looking at the photograph as it emerges from the camera and slowly develops in front of your eyes. Mm. Mm. Um, That whole deal is really her art. It's not just... You know, I use technology X or technology Y. Right. It's the very essence of it. Mm. She found in in the Polaroid and in the process of taking Polaroids, her life's calling. Right. And yeah, I could see her running around with a large format camera of one kind or another, or maybe even a digital camera. But I can very easily see why she sees this as a loss. Mm. Like you've developed uh, your art in this world that you see vanishing. 
in front of you. Yeah. Hmm. There's a lot of uh, really great material in this film about how her camera operates, how she takes the photos, and again, you say watching them sort of develop in front of you. And you've always been very interested in the way systems work, like mechanical systems or the systems of the universe or systems of government. What draws you to those questions of how things work beyond just the human realm of like how the the machines we build or the the universe we live in operates and functions. Why wouldn't you be interested in that kind of thing? (laughs) I don't know any better way to describe it. I'm interested in stuff. Mm. I like thinking about stuff. Making films for me is a way of thinking about things. Right. Uh, an opportunity to think about things. Making this film about Elsa Dorfman um, is an expression of love. It's someone that I really deeply care about and love. But it's also a way for me to think about photography, about friendship. Mm -hmm. Um, In many ways, it's a story about loss, the loss of this art form. But it's also a story about people that Elsa herself has loved over the years and has photographed. Um, Photographs of her parents, photographs of Allen Ginsberg, etc. People who are gone. Mm. And Elsa, at one point in this movie, says that perhaps photographs take on their real meaning after the subject has died. Yeah. And I know this from personal experience, the photographs that she took of my mother and stepfather, who died now well over 15 years ago, uh, how important those photographs are to me, Mm. how it really brings them back. Photography is about memory, Mm. and it's about this this deep human desire to stop time. We feel ourselves um, like butterflies pinned to the board of time Mm. without any way of stopping it, of controlling it. And it's a powerful metaphor for something, maybe for life, God knows. Um, The realization that you can't stop time, Mm. but somehow you can seize it for this strange moment in a photograph. Right. Hmm. Um, Elsa quite poetically describes it as nailing down the now. I've never heard a better way of describing a photograph. Um, and then the somber realization that the now is fleeting, that it's scrambling ahead of us constantly. Hmm. Hmm. Um Elsa tells a story in the movie about her mother always saw her as ridiculous. She keeps telling me, I hear this over and over again, I think I just heard this yesterday, how she wished her mother could see this movie because her mother really never appreciated her art or what she did. And it's wonderful to see how much enjoyment Elsa gets out of just watching this movie. Yeah. Mm. Um, Telling the world that actually this is an artist who has worked really, really long and hard, has not been involved in 
self-promotion or trying to advertise herself as an important artist, but has just plied her trade and in the process over many years has created an extraordinary body of work. Mm. Mm. Great, great. You mentioned uh, her talking about nailing down the now. And as a documentary filmmaker, do you feel like your films, do you have that same relationship to your films that they're capturing a particular moment in your subjects' lives or or do you not feel that way about them? Um, I'm not sure. Certainly, when you record an interview, you're trying to capture something about a person. Mm-hmm. Um, whether you're successful or not, I don't even really know. Mm. I'm also really fascinated by how people see themselves. If there was a way of actually recording that in part, right. not just me looking at them, but them looking at them and thinking about who they are um, uh, it's a complicated, interesting process. Mm. Uh, I can't say that I've always been successful, but I always have said that documentary film, uh, I don't know what it's worth. I don't know why I do it. I don't even know if I should be doing it. But I do know that it's successful, I feel, if you've captured something of the people that you've put in front of your camera. I don't know how much, I don't know how real or truthful it is, but the feeling that you've captured something. Right. And I like to think, you'll have to correct me if I'm wrong, that I capture something about Elsa Dorfman. That we, just judging from the response to the film, people love her. Yeah. And if that's all I've done, yeah, that'd be a good thing. Yeah. I'd be happy with that. (laughs) Yeah. How do you uh, how do you decide which subjects you're going to pursue? Because your your films have such wildly different subject matter, from you know pet cemeteries to true crime investigations to like uh, Robert McNamara to now Elsa Dorfman. How do you zero in on a topic and say this is this is going to be the next thing? I think it happens uh, in a way that I can't even control. Mm. Elsa happened; it had been on my mind for years. Like I should make this film. It's that. Injunction. Someone's pointing a finger at you and saying, you should make this film. <laughs> but she told me the Gentle Giant, the local moving company, was coming to her house to take these huge uh, Polaroid photographs uh, into storage where they could be digitized. And I thought, well, this isn't going to happen every day. I better go out there and film it. <laughs> and so we started making a film. It's the way I should work at least part of the time, not asking for permission to make a film, not looking for money to make a film, but just making a film, just going out there and doing it, which becomes – I'm not going to say that it's easy because it never is easy, but it's become easier mm. because of the nature of – I mean, that's the good side of how things have changed in the last 20 years, that it's – possible to shoot a lot of material less expensively than you could have shot it before. Sure, sure, sure. You mentioned that Elsa, when she saw that Polaroid, it was like she's found her life's work. And then you said, you're not sure why you make documentary films. Do you not feel like they're your life's work? Well, it could be my life's work, and I still could be unsure about why I'm doing it. (laughs) (laughs) What's the best answer you've come up with for yourself about why you were drawn to this field? 
Well, I wrote a book about photography, um, Believing is Seeing. Mm-hmm. And I talk about my early childhood, the eye operation that I had when I was three years old. Yeah. It's a fascination with vision. I think it's a kind of paranoia mm. at best. You know, what do I really know about the world and about myself? Um, a way of investigating some of those themes. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. When you made the Thin Blue Line um, in the 80s, uh, terrific film at the time caused some controversy, now seems to be the basis of an entire true crime industrial complex. When you look at like all of the true crime interest that's around us now, do, do, you, do you feel like that's in some way inspired by what you did or, or do you think that just people are always interested in crime? Well, several parts to the answer at least uh, two parts that I can think of. People have always been interested in true crime. Mm. Uh, When the Thin Blue Line came out in the end of the 80s, uh, it was rejected for an Oscar because of the use of reenactments. Mm -hmm. It was considered to be a big, big documentary no-no. You just were not supposed to do that. I had violated some kind of rule. And... Over the years, I've thought a lot about it because Mm -hmm. I think rules are made to be violated. (laughs) Um, The fact that I'd used reenactments was a way of exploring the reality of what happened. Mm -hmm. I wasn't trying to show people an absolute version. I showed alternatives. Mm -hmm. It was a way of bringing you deeper and deeper into the mystery of the crime. And it occurred to me at some point... I was very defensive about it at first. I thought, oh, no, no, no. What I was doing was perfectly okay, blah, 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 blah. But I've come to realize that it's all a reenactment, one big, fat reenactment, that reality is a reenactment, that consciousness is a reenactment of reality inside of our skulls. Mm -hmm. It's not that we seize on the real world in its purest form, We all imagine what the world might be like, and we try to investigate, we try to poke and prod, uh, to look at things from different angles, uh, so that we can come to a deeper understanding of what's out there. Mm. Mm. Not only is reenactment okay, there isn't anything other than (laughs) reenactment. That's great. When you look back at your early career, when you look back at like like uh, Gates of Heaven and Vernon, Florida, and some of those movies, what do you remember from that time, and what what do you think has most changed about you from that time as a filmmaker? Uh, I'm marginally less desperate. Um, there was a time when no one would give me money to make films. Mm-hmm. In fact, my job as a private investigator came as a result of the fact that I was an out of work filmmaker. Mm. So it's become easier, uh, much easier, I should be honest here, yeah. to make movies. But I've always had more ideas than I have time to make them, time or money to make them, and I just would like to go on with it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you, you, seem to, you seem in these last 10 years especially to be making just films that are really amazing clips, short films, feature films. 
and everything in between. Uh, what is there an idea you've had over the years that now you just no longer can do because the subject died or, or something happened that made it impossible? But is there like an idea that got away that you, you wish you'd been able to do? Well, there are hundreds of ideas mm-hmm. that, that I w- wish I could do. And I keep thinking that there's always a way still to do something. Mm-hmm. It is problematic if your subject is dead, but it's not an insuperable problem. You mm-hmm. perhaps can find a way around it. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Interesting. Um, you mentioned a lot of times you talk about your private and in- time as a private investigator. What do you think that that taught you that made you a better filmmaker? And what about being a filmmaker made you a better private investigator? There might not be any difference between the two of them. Mm-hmm. That's the ugly truth. Mm-hmm. What makes you a good private detective? Desire to find things out. Yeah. Desire to find things out in files, file cabinets, shuffling through uh, endless reams of paper, mm-hmm. and the ability to talk to people, um, to have people talk to you, even more importantly. Mm. So what is the difference? Yeah. Uh, it was always embarrassing to me when I worked as a private detective. I would tell people, I'm a filmmaker. Mm. Which was bizarre because I would say to myself, well, wait a second. I am a filmmaker. But I'm telling people I'm a filmmaker in a way to pretend that I'm making a film when I'm not making a film. I am a filmmaker, but I'm pretending to be a filmmaker. Mm. And it was incredibly interesting. You would show up in a place and you would tell the people you were investigating you were a filmmaker, but you didn't have a camera, so they felt completely at ease talking to you. Sure, sure. Hmm. So go figure. Yeah, I think you're one of the great interviewers. Like you get great answers from people, you get great um, uh, insight from people. What have you learned in your years of filmmaking, private investigating, whatever, about how to conduct a good interview? And I will take copious notes. Oh, don't take any notes, please. <laughs> I was expecting the unexpected. Mm-hmm. Things have happened in interviews that I could never plan for in any way. Mm. Even in the B-side, there are moments in it that happened in front of the camera that could never have been planned for. Mm. Elsa looking at the photograph of her mother and father, who in turn in that photograph are holding a picture of themselves as a young couple. Elsa looking at the photographs he's taken of people who were dead, lost in the memories of what it was like to be in that room when the photograph was taken. Mm. I've learned that being an investigator and being a filmmaker is allowing the spontaneous to happen. Right. People, I do a lot of commercials, ask me, well, how can you make something that looks spontaneous happen on film? And I say, well, the best way to make something that looks spontaneous is to make it spontaneous. In fact, I think it's the only way. Uh, there's a moment in the Thin Blue Line that I'm particularly proud of. I was interviewing this eyewitness, the principal eyewitness that led to 
my protagonist, Randall Adams, being sentenced to death mm. in the Texas electric chair. This is a man who was innocent and who I eventually freed from jail. And she told this wild cockamamie story. I could never have known enough to ask her. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, when she started telling me the story, uh, I didn't know enough about it whether to believe her or disbelieve her, but I sat and listened. Mm -hmm. And in the course of that interview, she told me things that showed that she had committed perjury mm. at this man's trial and led to his conviction in Texas being reversed. Mm. So what is that? It's not the Sherlock Holmes model of investigating where you have a hunch, a clue, and you somehow act on it. Uh, the brilliant insight. Um, it's very different. It's being receptive to something that you have not anticipated, that you couldn't possibly have even known about. Mm. Robert McNamara, in the first couple of minutes of my interview, this is something that you're supposed to achieve after a couple of hours or days of interviewing, told me th that he considered himself possibly a war criminal. If uh, our side had lost, he's talking about the firebombing of the Japanese cities during World War II. If our side had lost, I would have been tried as a war criminal. Mm. Um, did I orchestrate the interview in such a way that he would say that? Mm -mm. Mm. No, I didn't. It just, it just happened. Mm. Mm. It's sort of going super granular with that. I think your films are really good at just showing people thinking. But that's like an editing challenge of when do you cut away from a person thinking about what they're going to say or when do you enter that shot? How do you make those choices of we're going to, we're going to cut to this person and just watch them think for a little bit and then we're going to cut away? There's a good rule of thumb. First of all, you have to have those moments. You have to direct a film in such a way that you do have those moments of people thinking or pausing after they've given an an answer, and then you edit them, and I always try to make them as long as possible, and the rule of thumb is you keep it on the screen until people start to scream. <laughs> they can't stand it anymore, and then you cut. <laughs> you uh, invented uh, a machine uh, uh, called the Interatron that let people stare right into the camera, which was different from what other documentary filmmakers have done. Why was it important to you to have that effect of us looking right at someone as if we we're having the conversation with them? Eye contact uh, has fascinated me. We're all aware of it when we're talking to someone, whether they're looking at us or not. Mm. Our brains are wired uh, to respond to eye contact. But the Interatron, this device that I invented never ceases to amaze me. I used it in a commercial quite recently. <laughs> and I was interviewing my son, and my son was interviewing me on the Interatron in the course of making this commercial. It's bizarre. <laughs> and you forget about the fact that you're in front of a camera altogether. Mm. Mm. Um, it's like we're sitting here. I'm looking at you. You're looking at me. They're live video images, but you don't see them as live video images. You see them as 
I'm looking at my son, my son is looking at me, and you start talking. Right. You forget about everything else. Mm. It was a device that was supposed to solve and indeed does solve the problem of eye contact, of where to look when you're doing an interview. But it goes well beyond that. Right. It creates a kind of space of its own, mm. which I truly believe facilitates communication. People sometimes describe it to me as if, oh, oh the Interatron, it sounds formidable, as if like you're uh, involved in some kind of severe form of interrogation, <laughs> um, enhanced interrogation. Uh, and it's quite the opposite. Mm. Um, and I've been struck over the years how well it works. I've had only one, and I call them customers, I've had only one customer who objected to the Interatron, and that was Robert McNamara. And he objected to it, I believe, my interpretation, my gloss on it all, because he's been interviewed 10,000 times, and then he comes in, and something's different, and he's immediately aware of that fact. So he comes into the studio. He'd only agreed to give me five minutes. Mm. Right? Comes into the studio. He sees the, the Interatron set up, and he says, what is that? <laughs> and I said, well, that's my Interatron service, my interviewing machine. And he says, I don't care what you call it. I don't like it. <laughs> and then I asked him to please take a seat. Yeah. He never said another word about it, and we did 20 hours of interviews on the Interatron, mm. and he was a completely happy camper. When you're doing a long, long interview, days, hours uh, like that, how do, you, how do you structure it? How do you keep uh, the conversation flowing? Like, do you, uh, do you have in your own head ideas of where you want to go, or do you just sort of follow them as they lead you? Well, I think I follow ideas as they lead me. Mm. I don't think I have a plan. Of course, there are things I want to cover. There are things that I want to have brought out in the interview. But I have always been surprised that somehow if I shut up and let people talk, they will take me where I want to go. Mm. Why that happens, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe it's part of my heart. But it's much better when ideas emerge naturally in the course of a conversation rather than are imposed on a conversation. Yeah, yeah. Mm. You mentioned your, um, your commercial work. You've done short films for ESPN and other organizations. Well, how do you see some of those uh, more, some of that work informing your longer work? I've been grateful for the opportunity to make them. Mm -hmm. I think it's all work. Mm commercials, um, or as I call them, American haiku, is, is mm. what you can say in 30 seconds, uh, short films for ESPN, for the New York Times, among others, and feature-length films, and now uh, a six-part series uh, for Netflix. Mm. Mm -hmm. So, full filmmaking. Mm. Mm. You did a first person, another television series, and now as you're starting to look back toward returning to television, what, what excites you about having that space to play a, a story out over? Well, television has changed markedly since I made first person mm -hmm. years ago. 
And in first person, I had this idea that I would use multiple cameras. <laughs> that idea has been with me forever. And I returned to that idea this time, shooting interviews, not with the Interatron, but with 10 cameras. Mm. 15, 20 years ago with first person, the technology wasn't there. Mm -hmm. It was something that you really couldn't do. Mm. Um, now you can shoot 10 cameras in 4K, uh, record everything, raw files, it's massive amounts of data, but it's all doable. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that kind of thing was just impossible. Mm. Even 10, 15 years ago, just impossible. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Uh, shooting with that many cameras, I don't know how far into this you are, but how has that changed your relationship to what's what's happening on screen? Uh, it's just a different way of recording an interview and certainly a different way of editing an mm. interview. Uh, I keep playing with the form. Uh, documentary interests me as an art form. And the idea of creating different ways of telling stories about the real world. God knows I was lectured about how you should shoot a documentary. You should use available light. You should use a handheld camera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But investigating what's true and what's false isn't something determined by a form of production, a form of filmmaking. It's what's going on inside of you and your desire to know about the world and to find things out. So playing with that idea, playing with the use of drama, uh, reenactment, interviews, archival footage, and on and on and on. Mm -hmm. When you're an investigator, properly speaking, anything and everything goes. What's your goal is to find out the truth. You find out in a crime what really happened. Right. Uh, did he do it? Mm. Is he guilty? Is he innocent? Um, and each time I've made a documentary, I've pretty much changed the format and right. invented new stuff, mm. new ways of telling stories, which I'm very proud of. Right. Um, Philip Glass, who I've worked with on four films now, and I'm about to make a fifth film with him, um, said to me, they can always copy what you've done, but they can never copy what you're going to do. Yeah. Mm. And I certainly believe that to be true, both mm. in his case and mine. Uh, the, the, we're living through a real documentary boom right now. Who are some of the filmmakers who've come up in, behind you that you've really been inspired by that you've found uh, to be doing really vital work? Well, my hero of the moment is, is Joshua Oppenheimer. Mm. Yeah. Um, I love those movies. I had the good fortune to meet Josh uh, years and years ago. I've known him for a long time. Uh, I had no idea that he was going to become such a great filmmaker. But he showed me rough cuts of the act of killing. My editor, Stephen Hathaway, and I will really remember the day that Josh came into the office with a rough cut of the act of killing. And... We watched this. You don't have the opportunity that many, many times to see something completely new and something original. Um, and that was the experience that day. Yeah. Hmm. So 
um, I remain a fan. Mm. We're going to start heading toward the end of the show now, but uh, I did have to ask, uh, this clip that went around a lot in the last couple of years is you interviewed Donald Trump about Citizen Kane. Uh, and it's, it's a great clip. It's on YouTube. You should go and find it if you haven't. Tell, or, pl- or play part of it. Or Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about filming that interview. And I guess when I watch it, I have sort of the experience of thinking, wow, Donald Trump knows more about Citizen Kane than I expected him to. And then at the end, I sort of like, he doesn't understand the movie at all. What was your experience of filming that? And like, what are your memories of that happening? And do you feel like they've informed you in some small way about the world we live in now? I was asked by Laura Ziskin, a producer, to do films that would run at the beginning of the Oscars. Mm-hmm. And the first one was to have people talk about their favorite movies. This is a short film, uh, four minutes and change, with well over 100 people in it. Mm-hmm. And I got to interview some pretty amazing people in the course of making this. I wanted it not to be just celebrities and movie stars. I wanted it to be, whatever this means, a kind of cross-section of people. And we filmed in L.A., San Francisco, Boston, and New York. And in New York, one of the more surreal experiences of my life, Mm. and there have been a number, I might add, Um, We had in the green room at one time Donald Trump, Iggy Pop, Mikhail Gorbachev, Jesse Norman, and Walter Cronkite. (laughs) Now, that doesn't happen every day. No. Uh, In fact, it never happens. Maybe it shouldn't ever happen, but it did happen. And Trump objected to the fact that we took Gorbachev before him. Um, but in those days, Gorbachev was an ex-head of state. I hope that Trump becomes an ex-head of state very soon. Um, And in the piece that appeared in the Oscars, he he says uh, that he identified with King Kong Hmm. and his desire to take over New York. He said, I could identify with that. But I also had him talk about Citizen Kane. Hmm. And it never appeared in the movie that ran uh, the Oscars, but I did a separate, a separate little film, kind of remarkable, small film. People react to it in so many different ways. Some people feel that Trump shows extraordinary insight that they would never imagine him to be capable of. Others less so. But the best moment of all is at the very, very, very end. And I ask Donald Trump whether he has any advice for Charles Foster Kane. And he thinks for a moment and he says, get yourself a better woman. Um, Yeah. (laughs) At times there seems to be a level of insight But in the end, it seems there's nothing there. Mm. Um, A phenomenon that I believe more and more people are becoming familiar with. Mm. 
Uh, well, we end the show every week by asking some of the same questions of our interview subjects. So I'm going to ask you now, what is the most recent work of culture, book, uh, movie, TV show, whatever that you have consumed, and what did you think of it? Well, I consume so many different things. I have what I consider to be the plague of literacy. Hmm. That was really the end of it for me when I learned to read. No one had told me the risks involved in reading <laughs> and how it could bring a lifetime of sorrow. <laughs> um, but uh, I still read and I still write. Hmm. Um, I still look at movies. It kind of amazes me. Hmm. But I'd be hard-pressed to tell you one thing that has influenced me really markedly in the last month or so. Mm. But I still like art. I like painting. I like music. Mm. I'm a musician. Yeah. Um, and I still, I don't know why, I still like filmmaking. Mm. Good God. Mm. Mm. Uh, who's the filmmaker you've learned the most from that you've never met? Eisenstein. Mm. <laughs> uh, that's probably true of everyone. <laughs> and finally, what's your what's your favorite movie? What's your favorite movie? A Detour. Why is that? Um, I, I was asked by the New York Times on the occasion of the 50th anniversary of Citizen Kane why Citizen Kane was the greatest American movie. And I said, oh, that's easy. It isn't. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then, of course, they asked me, well, then what is? And I said, well, detour, of course, Edgar <laughs> Ulmer's detour. Why detour? Uh, done uh, on uh, close to a zero budget, mm -hmm. a poverty roast uh, studio, and one of the bleakest, existentially barren films of all time. Mm. And also, oddly, really funny mm. Mm. great well uh, you can see the B-side in theaters now many of your films are available all over the world Errol Morris thank you very much for joining us thank you for having me I Think You're Interesting is hosted and executive produced by Todd Vanderwerf in case you hadn't guessed that's me I'm going to read to you some closing credits now please continue pondering the true nature of reality Fox Podcasting is headed up by Marty Moe and Jackie Goldstein. Our executive producer of audio is Nishat Kurwa. Our sound designer is Miles Ewell. Our logo design is from Victor Ware, Crystal Stevens, and Georgia Cowley. Our production manager is Alex Ulreich. Our production coordinator is Paige Bethman. Our audio engineering and post-production are thanks to P3 Post. Our studio is the Lovely Village Workspaces podcast studio in Santa Monica, California. Our editor is Peter Leonard. Our recording engineer is Che Brooks. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe. I think you're interesting on whatever podcast platform you listen to, whether it's Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or CastBox or whatever you happen to have that you're listening to this on. Please rate, review, and subscribe. It helps people find the show. It helps us book guests for the show, to be honest. I'll be back next week with somebody from the world of arts and entertainment, somebody who I think is interesting. Until then, remember, it's only true if you think it is.